Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI-audio's on-air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the host of today's show, Ramya Amuthan. It's a midweek takeover, actually, with myself and Daniel McLaughlin and Eliza Rocco. We have all taken over Kelly and Company, so where are all the... Re- Wednesdays uh, usually feel... have a specific feeling on Wednesdays? Yeah, it's it's definitely what they call hump day. If you once mm-hmm. you're through Wednesday, you think, ah, oh, just a couple of days, and we'll hit and the weekend. You're gone. Yeah, and then all all will be right with the world. But uh, I don't know. I kind of like Wednesdays because it's been my habit to um, do volunteer reading at Pal Reading on Wednesday mornings. And oh, they're volunteer I, days. It is, and I have to say that. Um, you know, it, it, it may be a volunteer job, but I do it solely for myself. I have so much fun <laughs> reading all that material. It's it's one of the mo- my most favorite ways of spending time. So, you know, shout out to Pal Reading and uh, any new clients who want to hear this voice on their book, do let us know. But mm-hmm. there are there are lots of lots of wonderful volunteers who read even better than I do, Ramya. <laughs> Oh it's my gosh, fun. you guys are all amazing at PAL. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on the board. Yeah, <laughs> but of course it is. You are. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you know, as they say, Danielle, because of the volunteering question, nothing in this world is truly altruistic. Am I right? It's no, very, right. we find yeah. pleasure in the wonderful service that we provide as volunteers for anything. So I encourage you that too as we start the show to find something of value in volunteer work that you can do. Now let's bring everyone up to speed on what we have coming up on today's show. Greg David is stopping by. He's our communication specialist at AMI. And today he's got some of this year's spooky favorites available on TV and streaming services that he'll share with us. Ryan Delahanty highlights support groups helping neurodiverse individuals in New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. And in the second hour of Kelly and Company, we're going back to World Mental Health Day. It was on October 10th, and we're learning about new data regarding mental health in the workplace. And this is with our friends from Robert Half Canada. We're actually roping in our friends from Robert Half at least once a month on the show. Very excited about that. Um, We're moving to the United States for this first piece of news and information. Florida is reporting an outbreak of cases of flesh-eating bacteria. Take a listen. Florida's Department of Health says there's been an increase in reports of flesh-eating bacteria this year. 65 cases and 11 deaths from Vibrio vulnificus infections, up from 34 cases and 10 deaths for all of last year. And it's been largely driven by a surge in Lee County, where Hurricane Ian came ashore last month. The health department reports 29 cases and 4 deaths there this year. However, the figures do not reflect how many of the cases were before or after Ian struck. Still, Lee County has warned people that the post-hurricane environment, including warm standing water, could pose a danger from the deadly bacteria. I'm Ben Thomas. So, of course, there's the fascinating and then the frightening. Danielle? 
Well, it's really interesting to me. You know, Vibrio is a, a family of um, bacteria that include Vibrio cholerae, the, the bacterium that, that gives people cholera. These mm-hmm. things occur, you know, they're, in, they're, they're there in nature. Shellfish uh, it is one of the places that Vibrio cholera um, are live because it's the same thing. It's the warm waters. So, yes. you know, the, the, the best thing that they're telling people to do is if you have a cut or an abrasion uh, on, on your body, don't go in the water uh, in, because, you know, it's, it's an opening for the flesh eating disease, Vibrio vulnificus to enter. Um, but, you know, as soon as um, there's a breakdown in any kind of infrastructure, and hurricanes really are a big cause of breakdowns in, in infrastructure, all kinds of things happen that we forgot about, you know, yep. like cholera and flesh-eating disease and, and other things that we think of just being in the past. I mean, we're, we're just a few uh, crises away from bubonic plague coming back, to be honest mm. with you. It's, it, it's very worrying. So... You know, don't laugh at it. Do not go in the water if you have cuts or abrasions on your body. It's the same thing like hearing about monkeypox and all these other things, Mm -hmm. right? Where you're like, when didn't, isn't that stuff gone? Uh, But not really. And then there's the opposite where we, when we first started hearing about COVID-19 being part of like the the family of corona viruses and thinking well that's not a big deal we're already you know around that um but not the case at all so keeping informed i think is the biggest uh thing here and (laughs) speaking of keeping informed for our next story a man with a distinctive back tattoo is suing cardi b saying he was humiliated after the lapper allegedly misused misused his likeness for her sexually suggestive mixtape cover art. Kevin Michael Brophy has filed a $5 million uh, copyright infringement lawsuit against the Grammy-winning musician, alleging he did not consent to the use of his likeness. So this is Cardi B, in case you don't know who she is, performing Up. I can make the party hot. I can make your body rock. Haters can do nothing with me. Chances are they probably not. If I had a stick, you'd probably lick it like a lollipop. Shorty speaking so yeah. cardi cardi is uh <laughs> this song is the yeah. perfect example of the type of thing that she would put on the cover but danielle are we going to start with a description of this tattoo or at least a, a general uh, i'm going to do my best here okay uh-huh. The, it is a full back tattoo. It may be a full body tattoo, but the photo I've seen only shows the back of the man, uh, Mr. Brophy. It goes from his neck down to the bottom of the photo, which is his hips. It may go farther south than that, but I don't mm. know. It is incredibly elaborate. It's in shades of brown and black. Um, and it shows a very large tiger starting at his waist and moving all the way to his upper back entangled with a very large serpent of some kind. Um, There are also images of bones, perhaps antlers. Uh, There are some other very small beasts. It's it's really a surrealistic picture. Um, It's moderately horrifying, to be honest with you, and it's certainly thorough. It covers the backs of his arms as well as his neck, and it, it must have taken months and months. I'm curious about the notion that you can 
copyright a tattoo. I would assume that hmm. whoever tattooed him would have the copyright, but perhaps not. I was going to say, yeah. should he even be concerned about this? Wouldn't it be his tattoo artist? But then again, I mean, I don't know how most of the tattoo a business works but a lot of times people are inspired by what they see on the internet to create yeah. the tat for you i've had it done on me but i'm not gonna say that where i got it from because what if i get sued but you know what i mean like it's it's <laughs> yeah. everywhere but That's maybe right. it's because we know cardi got the money so well she's gonna she got to the money off. she also uh, apparently her uh, cover artist took a copy of this man's tattoo or at least a piece yeah. of it because he didn't use the whole thing and um, had it appear on the back of somebody else who is uh, on the cover of the album uh, with his head between her legs and Mr. Brophy is objecting strongly to this image. Yeah, very not, upset. Not, very upset. Ah, what a note to leave it on. Stick around because we're going to be right back. <laughs> Talking Health with Grant Hardy. This is Kelly and Company. If we've given you something to comment about, you can always reach us. Tell us exactly what it is you're thinking about our conversations. 1-866-509-4545. If you leave us a message on the voicemail box over there, give us permission to air it if you want us to do that. Also, feedback at ami.ca is our email address. And on Twitter, the handle is at AMI Audio. Also very engaged on social media. So check us out there. I'm Ramia Amudin here with Danielle McLaughlin. And on Wednesdays, we flip through some headlines a couple times in the show. But the first one, starting with Grant Hardy, uh, focusing on a little bit of health. And Grant, you were on our meeting earlier when we talked about this tattoo business. But the, the question of copyright, do you, have any, um, do you have any thoughts on that? Who really owns the copyright to someone's tat? Yeah, it's a funny one because... I, I mean, I would imagine these things, I mean, the thing is, hopefully these things would all be settled kind of in your contract rather than sort of after mm-hmm. the fact. I, I personally, um, I personally would like to see people, consumers having control of their own tattoos. I kind of have a problem with the idea that an artist could, I know this isn't the case in this story, but that an artist could sue after the fact or sort of hold the copyright to your design so that your friend couldn't get it. I mean, I get it. My body, my art I kind get, of thing. I guess that's the idea. I, I get mm. the other side, though, too. So it's worth yeah. thinking about. Yeah. Gray area. For well, sure. definitely gray area. Well, Daniel, you were going to say? Well, I was just going to say that people sorry, start, ahead. sorry, I was just going to say that people tend to identify with their tattoos. So, you know, if you say it's not even yours, it belongs to the artist who did it, people will probably object to that because they'll say, sure. hey, I'm the guy with the snake on my face or something like that. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I yeah. think that's the idea. And it's funny because a lot of, you know, even stuff like your wedding photographer or your you know all these services that we have a lot of people 
feel, I believe, as though they sort of own the copyright to something. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people won't give you the original, like, photographs yes. or, you yeah, know, right. there's all kinds of stuff. So, And it's, yeah, it's one of those things I can't say I fully agree with it, but I kind of get the other side, though. Mm. So, I don't know. Let's share right. Oh, we've stirred something yeah. up right now. Okay. All right, Grant. <laughs> Grant, what do you have for us today? Okay, well, one thing that is not up for dispute, I don't think, is that uh, sleep is very important. And we've got an article here from Best Health, what to do when you get seven hours of sleep or more and you still feel sluggish. Um, If you wake up feeling like you've just run a marathon or you were up all night, that is a red flag, says Mark. A neurologist and sleep health sleep health expert at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. People come with different levels of energy, and every one of us is very different. We all need a different amount of sleep, he says. But if you're still tired and you don't have the ability to carry out tasks, that's obviously a big problem. Now, many individuals monitor their sleep using an app on their smartphone, smart smartwatch, or a fitness tracker which is not a bad idea, he says, but not the same as comprehensive testing in a sleep lab. He says these products will give you kind of a general idea of how well you're sleeping, but not those nitty-gritty details of what sleep stage you're in. Uh, They can't tell you if you have sleep apnea. Uh, If a formal study is needed, your family doctor can refer you to a local sleep clinic. There are many reasons people feel tired uh, and uh, lots of Medical and psychological factors may play a role. A doctor may need to review your prescriptions and order several different blood tests, including checking your iron levels and various vitamin levels. If you're found to have an iron deficiency, uh, your medical professional can recommend different types of supplements to help reach the levels that are right for you. Um, They may also screen you for potential thyroid issues like hypothyroidism, which can cause exhaustion as a main symptom. Uh, Also, it could be sleep apnea. If you're clocking somewhere between seven and nine hours, but you still feel exhausted in the morning, sleep apnea might be the cause. This is a condition that causes the breathing to stop and start intermittently. Uh, It might be like a snoring and and gasping type thing. If you have a partner, that may be something they can provide some insight on to diagnose. And it's important to get that treated uh, because it can lead to uh, a lot of health issues. Also interesting is that we have this belief that if we're having very crazy dreams where we're running around, you know, being chased by a lion or something like that. We sort of feel like, okay, we maybe didn't actually get the sleep we need. That's actually not the case. Apparently, that is a sign of good and deep sleep. And also, this one was a disappointment to me, uh, getting more than nine hours of sleep regularly, as well as less than seven hours of sleep regularly, is not good for you. So basically, the upshot here is if you wake up in the morning not feeling so hot routinely good to go see your doctor to get checked out uh how do you 
guys do here on the, um, uh, you guys are in Toronto and the show is midday, so that's not too bad schedule wise, but uh, how do you guys do with your sleep? Do you get sort of a full eight hours and do you feel rested and refreshed in the morning? Well, if you're a regular listener on the show, you can answer on behalf of me. Yes, I love my sleep. <laughs> I prioritize it. I recommend it. I encourage everyone around me to sleep well and healthy. Not like sleep all day, but you know what I mean? I pay attention to when somebody says they're not getting good sleep either. But it's interesting how many of us, like I feel there's still a lot of stigma around sleeping, you know, or feeling like you need to uh, ask for a full night of sleep or staying out too late on Friday nights is just part of the norm, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, Danielle, I'm curious about you. Well, I really like sleeping as well. Um, okay. I try to get my, you know, my, my eight hours. Um, it's always hard when I'm reading a book I really like just before I go to bed, either I keep reading it until late or it, haunts my sleep because I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen next. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, sleep apnea is a big problem, especially as people get older, that, that it becomes more common. Um, and a lot of times people don't know they have sleep apnea unless their partner tells them. So if you live alone, yeah. you, you may not know that you're waking up, you know, 10 times in an hour or that you're you know, snoring loudly enough to rattle the windows, um, and and these are these are real problems with sleep. Um, I, I, you know, have various family members with, with uh, sleeping issues, and I I know they can they can be miserable. Not not getting enough sleep yeah. probably feels worse than getting too much, but I don't mm. know. Yeah, it's interesting for uh, well, some of us because I think having vision loss. Uh, we talked about this Ramia off air yesterday. Um, I think can really mess up a person's sleep cycle. And yeah. that's definitely the case for me where I feel like, you know, society kind of forces me to get up and go to bed at somewhat regular times. Otherwise I wouldn't be able to do my job, but like mm -hmm. if left alone, or I find if I have like, two weeks of vacation or whatever i my sleep cycle is all over the place i can be up until the morning i can be you know not tired for hours and then suddenly kind of want to sleep through the day it's it's really crazy and i i should probably get myself to a sleep clinic too but mm -hmm. um de definitely important to get a handle on that yeah, for sure. That notion uh, no. of the the wearables and all these different ways that we track our sleep are great, but we have to tag that onto if you experience any problems uh, or you know that you know you're noticing irregular sleep, especially that REM stuff, because it's very specific information nowadays. These um, wearables and other tracking devices can give you, you know, utilize that information and talk to your healthcare professionals. Grant, you are ready to move on. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, too, is that uh, he may be a bit out of date because the wearables are getting better and better and we get yeah. much more information. Uh, all right, sure. we'll zip through this next one quickly here. Uh, we've got an article. Uh, so the provincial government of Ontario and the Ontario Medical Association have agreed to decrease payments to doctors for one-off virtual visits. 
a move meant to stem the tide of virtual-only clinics and encourage doctors to provide comprehensive ongoing care to patients. The one-off virtual visits will be paid at a reduced rate of $15 to $20 when the physician renders a service to a patient where there is not an existing patient-physician relationship, according to the Physician Services Agreement. Uh, the uh, Let's see here. Uh, uh, they say an ongoing relationship with a family physician is the foundation of a good healthcare system as it provides both comprehensive care and continuity of care. Uh, critics, though, are saying that, honestly, this is going to attack the most vulnerable people, those people without a family doctor. They didn't really mention it, but I would also say you know, people with disabilities where sometimes actually going in in person, it, you know, it's one of these things, again, where we always come up with, we, our community knows that stuff is possible for years before the general public knows that it's possible. I've always known that as you got, like, not just me, every, all of us have that, you know, why not just call your doctor to get your prescription renewal if you don't have to do it in person? But it doesn't work that way because it's all based on the fee structure. Finally, we've started to have these virtual visits. And now it looks like things are going to start to be reduced in terms of the fees, at least in certain cases. And I'm curious how you guys think this will impact people's uh initiative to provide that virtual care to vulnerable patients. So I the mean, idea is that the doctors will get less money than if they're yeah, so the idea who isn't part is, of their... So the idea is that if you have an ongoing relationship with a family doctor, you can still see them virtually. That's fine. They'll still get the same amount of money. Also, if you're referred to a specialist, it doesn't affect that. Uh, however, I guess they're trying to clamp down on like these kind of virtual only uh, mm -hmm. clinics that are popping up and, and doctors that are sort of trying to fill the capacity by seeing people virtually who don't have an existing patient relationship with them. It's, it's one of these things that just sounds, I don't know, it doesn't even really sound that great in theory, but I guess I can see how it maybe sounded good to some people in the boardroom, but just curious how it will actually affect vulnerable patients day to day. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like there will be people who won't get access to a doctor. We never really, you know, that, that because doctors are going to say, well, I'm not going to take that patient. I don't get paid enough for it. <laughs> and then that patient doesn't get to see a doctor that or, or hear from a doctor. That doesn't sound like a good idea. Yeah, I suppose there's not, not really much else to say on that other than uh, it just seems like we're creating less incentives for doctors to see those vulnerable patients. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be great to think that everybody should have a family physician. That seems like almost kind of a rite of passage to have a family physician, but unfortunately we're just not set up for that yet. It's only a lucky mm -hmm you who have that and it's almost yeah. a privilege too isn't it because it sort of transmits often down from your family that already has one it seems as though that's what, how it seems and it definitely feels like there's not enough of a support system to have a regular doctor if you're coming from the place where you don't already 
or if you've moved to a new area or if, you know, the most accessible doctors are not taking patients. Grant, great articles. Thank you so much for bringing these. Always a pleasure, folks. Talk to you later. Grant Hardy is our reporter and uh, helps us produce here on Kelly and Company. We're going to take a break. Come back with Greg David. He's got some spooky favorite TV shows for us to check out leading up to Halloween. Tomorrow, that's Thursday, uh, October 20th, we have a special broadcast for you over your lunchtime, well, 12 p.m. Eastern time at least. AMI-audio is taking you to the Royal York Hotel for the Canadian Disability Hall of Fame luncheon. We try to keep in touch with this um, initiative every year. And so it starts at noon, ends at 2 p.m. Eastern time, right before Kelly and Company. It's a two-hour broadcast. Um, take a listen. Josh Duick, Lauren McDonald, and Greg Westlake will be inducted this year. And earlier this year, Joita Gupta on The Pulse spoke with the inductees um, at length. So some of that will be aired tomorrow as well, portions of those broadcasts during this broadcast. And Andy Frank will be your host during this luncheon, two-hour period. Check it out. It's going to be a fun time. And it, it is a live broadcast, so nothing else afterwards. No podcast, no re-airings. So please take a listen if you have the time. That's on AMI-audio. I'm Ramia Amuthan. Co-hosting with me today is Daniel McLaughlin, and it's time for us to talk TV with Greg David. I'm Greg David, and I love television. Reality shows, dramas, sitcoms, and documentaries. I watch them all. I'm excited to share my passion for the television industry with you in front of and behind the cameras as it changes and evolves. Okay, it's going to be fun because Halloween is coming up very soon, and you're stopping by, Greg, to scare us. With some of your spooky favorites available on TV and streaming services. So shall we get started? Because I don't want to leave any of these on the table. Danielle's really looking forward to it. Yeah, sure. And I was just okay. going to say really quickly, that I was, I, I'm, it was great to hear uh, that Danielle's going to be part of the show today. We can talk about Kelly yeah. if we have time. Oh, yes. We have t- yeah, we have time. <laughs> we, we, we can gossip behind his back. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we're starting with conventional television um, and the new TV series, The Winchesters. What's this one about and where can we find it? Yeah, so first of all, it's a prequel to Supernatural, which was that great horror series that aired for, I think it was a decade on the CW. It ended up being the longest running drama series ever on that network. Uh, But The Winchesters airs Tuesdays at 8 p.m. on uh, the CW and CTV Sci-Fi channel here in Canada. And it follows how John and Mary Winchester first met. And so in Supernatural, it's following around Sam and Dean Winchester, the the siblings, the brothers. Uh, but mm-hmm. this is all about the parents and when they first meet. And so when we, when we meet up with them in the first episode, John has just come back to his small town um, from uh, service in Vietnam. 
and Mary is trying to track down her missing father, who is a demon hunter, and together they and their friends end up battling demons and other assorted monsters every week. We're only two weeks into the show, uh, but it's already a ratings winner. Last week's debut was the highest rated debut on the CW in years. And basically, if you like Supernatural, then you're going to love the Winchesters. I really, really liked it. There's tons of humor that they've established already that the show isn't taking itself too seriously. Um, the characters are great. Um, around Mary and John, not only is the casting on point, but the characters that they've surrounded these two with are great. And Jensen Ackles, who uh, played uh, Dean Winchester on uh, Supernatural, he's an executive producer and co-creator on this, but not only that, but he's also the narrator. So if you're missing yourself a little bit of Jensen Ackles, you get to hear his voice in the Winchesters every Tuesday. Did you follow through with Supernatural? Like, were you a Supernatural fan? Yes. So I have to admit there were a couple of seasons in there where I stopped watching. They got into some heavy angels and demons storylines yeah. that, that kind of um, dragged for a while. Um, but I definitely watched the the last couple of seasons and I, I really enjoyed the uh, the series finale of the show. What about you? Did okay, you cool. did you watch it all the way through? No, I think I watched four seasons of it, but I just couldn't get into it. Like at that yeah. time of my life, I was rom-com. So... <laughs> Okay. Well, you know, not supernatural. Yeah. Don't come after me. <laughs> if you want to catch, well, the thing is, if you want to catch up on all the past seasons, you can always check it out on uh, on Netflix. Great. Oh, cool. So, Greg, real life people talking about their supernatural experiences is a genre all its own now, and the Travel and Escape Channel features a bunch of them. Can you tell us something about these? I have to to tell you that I am a real wuss and anything that's scary, I, yeah, no, I go in the kitchen. <laughs> so no, I, yeah, no, I get it. And what's interesting is, so Travel and Escape is a specialty channel that you have to pay extra for per month. And it's part of my uh, specialty channel lineup. And it used to be Travel and Escape was all about uh, it was travel shows and getting away from home and going somewhere else. But then, of course, they had to kind of change things up over the last couple of years because people weren't traveling as much. So now it's all about spooky shows. Uh, and among them that I wanted to, to mention off the top is a program called Haunted Hospitals. It's a Canadian series, and it's former hospital workers recalling some super scary incidents. And it's told through them speaking into the camera. This is a documentary series. And as they're telling the story, actors and actresses recreate the whatever it is that they went through. And I do want to mention it because AMI's own Mike Ross appeared as an undead patient in a past <laughs> yeah. Yes. of haunted hospitals. Uh, so I wanted to draw your, yeah, <laughs> so I wanted to draw your attention to that. But then other programs that are on Travel and Escape right now in the coming weeks as we get closer to Halloween uh, are Eli Roth presents A Ghost Ruined My Life. I think we know what that all means. It's about ghosts ruining people's lives. A show <laughs> called Unexplained Caught on Camera and Paranormal Caught on Camera. So this is the type of programming that you can expect when you tune in to Travel and Escape. If you want scary stuff all the time, tune in. Danielle, maybe you want to go to Food Network or HGTV yeah. instead. <laughs> ice skating. Straight I'll watch to ice comfort skating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So obviously AMI, we had to hop on board with this trend as well. And yeah. we we have our own spooky series here on AMI called Sightseers. Tell us about this one. 
Yeah, for sure. So Mark Jolie, uh, who's blind, he actually just passed away in the past year. So our, of course, our, our continued condolences to his family and friends. But Mark, mm-hmm. who's blind, and Laura Warren are a crack team of investigators, and they tackle mysteries and solve a series of fascinating paranormal problems on Canada's each coast. And when you tune in for each episode of, of uh, Sightseers, uh, it's going to be tackling a different case. And each case calls for a slightly different approach and roster of experts, depending on the details of the story. And at the end of each episode, that there's either a clear opinion of what the result of the investigations have been and the viewer that can then decide whether they believe in it for, or not. So... Um, Basically, it breaks down that Mark and Laura go into a supposedly haunted building. They're told the stories about what people have experienced there. And then they spend some time themselves walking around and trying to get a vibe and, and trying to figure out what it, what's going on. And then the last half of the episode are experts coming through, uh, you know, scientific experts, uh, you know, home inspectors saying, well, here's what it could be. It could be a creaky floor. It could be a draft going through the <laughs> attic. But at the end of each episode, you can decide your yourselves whether or not you think that these locations are really haunted or not and as much as it is a spotlight about the supernatural it's also really a showcase of some really cool buildings that you might want to visit the next time you're in the east coast or if you already live in the east coast visiting because one of the episodes was the halifax club based in halifax which uh it has been attracting people since since the 1800s but there's been some weird stuff going on in that building some different sightings that people have seen uh, so Mark and Laura investigate that one. And then another cool building in the first uh, season of Sightseers was Queens County Museum in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, where people were seeing smoky wisps, hearing eerie-like sounds. And then, of course, you know, the usual bumps and thuds and thumps happening. Uh, if you're interested in Sightseers, you can stream it right now on AMI.ca or the free AMI-TV app. Whoa. Okay, let's move to Netflix, which has a number of horror-themed programs. Uh, You've noted, too, The Haunting of Hill House and The Midnight Club that we should be checking out. Tell us about those. Yeah, so The Haunting of Hill House is a show that came out a few years ago, and it is really, really spooky. It's based on the story by Shirley Jackson. If you don't know about that, you can Google it, um, maybe pick it up from the CELA library if it's available there. It's a show that uh, the show itself, The Haunting of Hill House, flashes between the past and present. Uh, It's about a family that moves into the Hill House that has been left to them by a family member, and they're confronting haunting memories of their old home and the scary stuff that that drove them from it. So it's it's all about the modern-day family moving into the house, and then they're getting flashbacks about the families that used to live there and the reasons why they left. The unfortunate thing about The Haunting of Hill House, the TV show, is a lot of the stuff is visual, and I have to admit that I don't know whether the described video is is up to snuff. Okay, great. Because... Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff that happens in the backgrounds of scenes that are that make the show really, really creepy. Weird shadows and weird, you know, ghosts peeking through windows and uncoiling themselves from other under counters (laughs) and things like that. Um, Henry Thomas and Carly Gugino are both in this uh, written by Mike Flanagan, who's known for um, writing and adapting horror writing into fantastic television shows and movies. Um, Viewers have talked about not being able to watch it alone. I did, Mm -hmm. but I did it during the day. You did? Um, Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's the first one. So, Ramya, you clearly have checked it out. So what were your thoughts on The Haunting of Hill House? 
Yeah, remember, Danielle, when over the break I was telling you uh, my friend stayed for a couple episodes of a show, then dipped, and then I had to watch the rest on my own? That was this show. That was it. And it was was so (laughs) worth it because, like you said, fantastic writing uh, and adaptation of whatever it was, a book, I think. Um, But it the thing is it's so scary it's terrifying and everything that comes after haunting of hill house like haunting of bly manor and yeah. midnight mass and uh, you're going to talk about midnight club just now it's all mike flanagan and it's all scary i couldn't make it through haunting of bly manor. i can't i couldn't make it through that one i didn't like the haunting of bly manor as much and that was why i made yeah. sure that i wanted to mention hill house because i liked it so much more and i it think maybe really that was well done yeah, the expectation was that it was going to be as good as ha- as the Haunting of Hill House, and it just and it just wasn't. Mm. Uh, yeah, like you said, the second show that I wanted to mention on Netflix is The Midnight Club, again adapted by Mike Flanagan, based on the books by Christopher Pike. Um, this just came out in the last few weeks, and I've already binged it. I loved it so much. It really? A group. Yep, I I liked it. You didn't like it? I didn't watch it yet, but my okay. brother's been right. scaring me out of it, so I'm not sure. Okay, so it follows. Isn't that what brothers are for? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I've heard stories about Ramya's brother. Like I've heard some horrible stories about him. (laughs) Um, But the Midnight Club is about eight terminally ill patients staying at a hospice called Brightcliff, and they begin to gather together at midnight to share scary stories. And the hospice is seen through the eyes of Alonka, who has terminal cancer. So we're seeing, you know, her coming into the building, meeting all of the all of the other teams that are there and young adults that are there and then joining the midnight club uh and they meet at midnight and they tell each other ghost stories and as they're telling these ghost stories it starts to uncover not only you know kind of their own fears because they're all terminally ill and are fearing their oncoming death but it also um you know kind of dovetails nicely with the history of the building uh there was once a cult that met there because of course there had to be a cult in that building to make <laughs> things super creepy uh everybody uh, the kids all discover a hidden secret basement and like i said it deals with illness mental health also is acknowledged as well as suicide uh faith and belief the performances are very well done but the writing is excellent and believable i watch so much television and i can a lot of times already say the line that the person's going to say next because writing can be so lazy Mm. sometimes. Uh, The writing in in, uh, The Midnight Club is so natural. It's just refreshing to watch a series as creative as this one has been. Wow. I love your critiques on these shows. We don't much talk horror on Kelly and Company. This has been very cool. Uh, And I do want to say well, actually, I don't know about Midnight Club being described or not. I'm hoping it is because all the yeah. others were. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is super interesting to watch horror-themed things with sighted people, like people who don't use audio description, and watch it with them using audio description along with me because almost always uh, things are not done exactly as they're happening on TV. So either the sighted person knows before I do or the audio description has spoiled what's going to happen. Right, right. (laughs) We lose that uh, sense of horror. Thank you so much, Greg. Thanks for having me. Enjoy being spooked out and spooking all of us out too. Greg David joins us for our TV talk every other Wednesday. And also every other Wednesday, we check in with Ryan Delahanty. He's going to highlight some support groups helping neurodiverse individuals in the East Coast. We'll be back with that on Kelly and Company.
Well, if you were listening to AMI Audio, you just heard the promo for The Departure Train. This is a two-hour special audio drama who we just spoke to the writer of Michelle Talker um, on the show a couple days ago on Kelly and Company. But this two-hour audio drama is go getting on AMI Audio. It's being broadcasted, debuted Saturday, October 29th and Sunday, October 30th at 4 p.m. Eastern time. There's no podcast. There's no rebroadcast. So you got to check it out. It's that weekend of Halloween. Check out the departure train. 4 p.m. Eastern, Saturday and Sunday. Well, I guess there is a rebroadcast. You can catch it one of those two days. (laughs) All right. This is Kelly and Company. Thanks for sticking around. We're here until 4 p.m. Eastern time. I'm Ramia Amuthan with Danielle McLaughlin. Today for our regional content report, we're joined by Ryan Delahunty, AMI content development specialist in Halifax. Hello, how are you, Ryan? I'm good. Nice to join you both today. I hope you don't have anything too spooky to tell us. I've got to tell you that I just even thinking about the things we talked about in the last segment was, was a little little over the top for me. I don't I, I don't okay. do well with ghosts. What can I say? Um. Put all my spooky sound effects and voices aside for the segment then. Yeah, oh, thank you, Ryan. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, today we wanted to talk about a couple of support groups helping neurodiverse folks in New Brunswick and PEI. Um, let's start with the Neurodivergent Collective of New Brunswick. How did this group come about? The group was recently featured in an article on CBC New Brunswick, where they spoke with several members, including Louisa Tardiff of Fredericton, who founded the group after being diagnosed with autism at 29 years old. Uh, Initially, she was quite relieved to have a better self-understanding, but quickly grew to feel isolated as she was unable to find support or services to help her navigate the next steps in her life. Where she was late diagnosed, she found many of the existing supports were geared towards younger individuals, and so she took it upon herself to create a platform for people with autism to connect, founding the Neurodivergent Collective of New Brunswick, a free peer-to-peer grassroots organization offering mutual aid, support, and collective care to people living with autism, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, uh, and other neurodisabilities. So the group describes itself as autistic-led and comprises uh, several subgroups, such as the New Brunswick Adult ADHD Group, uh, Queer Neuroqueers Group, the Autistic Parents of New Brunswick Group, and several others. And the peer groups provide support meetings and discuss a range of topics to help members deal with the challenges in their daily lives, uh, things like mental health, sensory issues, relationships, dating, and all sorts of comics uh, thereabouts. Well, this is really important because so often when people think about neurodivergence, they think about, you know, that that there have to be supports in schools and it's, you know, they, they think about children. But of course, there are plenty of people who are not diagnosed till they're out of school, till they're adults. And they have trouble finding um, supports and, and and resources. So this sounds really great. And often that, you know, the academic approach or, you know, an organization where maybe, you know, people don't self-identify, uh, sometimes, you know, there's so much value in people that are going through the same thing and you can learn sometimes a lot more, you know, practical, um, you know, things that have a kind of an immediate impact on your, on your life. So, yeah, it's always great to see these sorts of organizations uh, coming together. Um, anyone in New Brunswick is interested in learning more, uh, where can we send them? 
I'd say the best place that I'd found to access uh, would be to look on Facebook and then search for the Neurodivergent Collective of NB group. And the group has been active for about a year now and has 250 members currently sharing advice and resources, fielding questions from other members, chatting. Um, they are a neurodiversity affirming community geared towards collective care uh, who also welcome neurodivergent New Brunswickers and allies also. And the group uh, being this grassroots effort, uh, they really want uh, to use their volunteers to create linkages between different neurodivergent communities. Uh, they welcome self-diagnosed people uh, as a di as diagnosis often is a privilege. Uh, they are a DPO, being a disabled people's organization, meaning the impacted leadership and members are neurodivergent themselves. Again, allies are welcome to follow their activities on the page. And some of the events and subgroups that they host are the Autistic Chat and Chill, uh, Autistic Adult Peer Support Group, uh, Queer Neuroqueers, Youth Queer Neuroqueers, and uh, other events and communities um, of identity for neurodiverse people to come. So I think there's a lot of room as well to kind of shape it and add uh, what you think would be of value to that group as well. Sounds great. Thank you, Ryan. Yes, it sounds amazing. And if we take the ferry over to PEI, there's a meet and greet coming up and in, uh, it's in recognition of ADHD Awareness Month. So can you tell us about the details? So the uh, group is, the organizing group is ADHD PEI, and they're hosting a pair of meet and greet nights to connect with the community and answer people's questions about ADHD and what their organization does. Uh, the first actually just occurred a couple nights ago on Monday night in Summerside, and the next is a week from today in Charlottetown, where there will be information about ADHD, how residents can get invo involved with the ADHD PEI group, and uh, relevant services offered in the community. And the sessions are open to the general public, especially those living with ADHD and ADD and their loved ones. Okay. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of information to be shared and to be learned um, by those of us attending. How can anyone in the Charlottetown area get involved? So this next session will be from 5 to 7 p.m. in the Community Kitchen Program Room at the Charlottetown Library Learning Center next Wednesday, October Sorry, um, maybe that's tonight. I'm sorry. I think I have my notes incorrect here. So I believe that's actually tonight, October 19th. And uh, if you need any more information, it's 902-978-0351. Uh, and uh, you can also follow the organization on Facebook and Twitter. Look up ADHD PEI. And their email is contact at ADHDPEI.ca. Uh, I just wanted to say that... Uh, Lately, I've been um, hearing more from people who've not been diagnosed formally with ADD or ADHD and are just in their adult life starting to learn about the kinds of accommodations that would have been great if they had it in school, you know, growing up in work accommodations. And um, really, there's a lot of learning going on for the individuals themselves, either actually being diagnosed now or just starting to understand, hey, this is what I've been through. Um, so these kind of information sessions and support from the communities are really, really important in localities, especially um, not just, you know, general awareness, but how things, how systems are in your neck of the woods and how we can adapt and accommodate better. Absolutely. And like everything else, it is a spectrum. And so even if you're, mm -hmm. you know, feeling that you, you know, you wonder if you maybe should self-diagnose, if you feel like you have certain 
tendencies or aspects. Uh, there's a lot of resources and strategies that I'm sure could, you know, benefit everybody. Uh, and so there's a lot, I'm sure, that you can find to take away from that. And yeah, looking at their uh, site now, as I said, easily found ADHD PEI on Facebook. And the Charlotte 10 Open House is tonight from uh, 5 to 7 p.m. Atlantic time. So uh, anybody in that area wants to check it out tonight, good opportunity to get involved. Sounds great. Now, uh, can we uh, wrap up our chat with the long-running event in Halifax supporting mental health? Uh, can you tell us about the upcoming Mosaic exhibition and sale? This is a really cool annual event, actually the 24th edition. So this has been running for quite some time now. And uh, this year's theme for the uh, Mosaic for Mental Health Art Exhibition and Sale, the theme is uh, Together Again. And it began just a few few days ago and will be running until the 30th of October. So this is uh, through the Canadian Mental Health Association, Halifax Dartmouth Branch. They organized this fundraiser where hundreds of six by six, six inch by six inch pieces of art, uh, beautiful and unique, uh, made I think mostly in the region, are sold through the Mosaic Market on their website. Uh, they did hold an in-person preview of the exhibition last Friday and sales of the art pieces began on Saturday and will continue online until the 30th. Uh, from exhibition posters, art frames, Mosaic note cards, all available. Um, and uh, that will be Sorry, they have some showing at the Craig Gallery in Halifax until 4 p.m. on Sunday. So there is some opportunity to look things up in person, but primarily all of the art sales uh, outside of their silent auction, which is separate, um, are happening on their website. Every piece is selling for $30 flat, and uh, you can pick them up at the gallery beginning on Friday the 28th after you've made your purchase online. And I just had a quick scroll through the collection after it was released, and there's over 850 pieces of art. Uh, wow. all quite unique. Uh, so quite a lot of variety. You know, we're getting towards the holiday season, so great occasion to do some gift shopping as well. And uh, definitely found a lot of pieces that I really liked when I checked out that collection. Uh, so if you want to take a look, maybe make some purchases, support a good cause, uh, all of the uh, the pieces in the market are available with a link on their homepage. And the proper uh, page for the organization is CMHA. Halifax Dartmouth, all one word together, dot CA. Who are the artists who have um, submitted their artwork for this uh, exhibition? Quite a variety. Not too many names that I was familiar with, but a lot of different styles. You would It looked fairly well organized where... Uh, all the pieces from the same artist were in sequence. And so, you know, I might have seen four or five from one artist, two or three from another. Um, but, uh, yeah, quite a variety. And I also like that they're um, sort of of a uniform size as well. I think it makes, uh, you know, displaying and, uh, you know, organizing the pickups and everything a little bit more easily. But, you know, you can kind of pick out a lot of pieces and have uh, a nice assortment of, uh, you know, gifts uh, for friends and family or just, you know, fill up some uh, wall space yourself as well. Well, that sounds just great. Thank you so much for uh, giving us so much information from the East, Brian. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, look forward to joining you all again in a couple weeks. Absolutely. Our content development specialists. <laughs> well, we don't know. <laughs> well, he Join can't us. promise that he won't be spooky the next time because it's just yeah, before Halloween is what I was going to say. It's true. He might be. <laughs> Well, he will join us uh, Wednesdays and Fridays, or our content development specialists will join us Wednesdays and Fridays on Kelly and Company. 
Oh, man. It's really fun. I didn't think that it would be this fun having you on and talking so much spooky stuff. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. I, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> such, a, such a wuss. It's really no fun. <laughs> you haven't even gotten around to making fun of Kelly yet. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, we will. <laughs> we'll probably do that in the second hour then. <laughs> exactly. And in that second hour, we're talking about mental health in the workplace. Really great theme of today's uh, show. And that's with our friends from Robert Half Canada. Also, a bonus know your rights conversation with Danielle. She's so generous. Uh, talking about Bill 124 and collective bargaining rights for your nurses and other government regulated healthcare professionals. But after the break, you know what's up. It's a Wednesday. We have the buzz with Bill Shackleton on Kelly and Company. Going into the second hour of Kelly and Company, we're here until 4 p.m. Eastern time, and we have lots more on the table for us to chat about, and uh, we'll get to everything eventually. But let's start with the buzz with Bill, because Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, Bill Shackleton joins us, and he brings some articles that he gets into, gives us a bit of a, a context, and then hears us out on what we have to say. Billy, thanks for joining us. How are you? Doing good. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're doing pretty good. Well. Except yeah. Romeo keeps trying to scare me. But other than that, we're doing fine. <laughs> do, how do you First do you like was... scary movies, Billy? Yeah, well, uh, the movies that I like are the old classic ones. <clears throat> yeah. And YouTube is full of them. Like I don't like the new ones, but the Boris Karloff. Oh yeah. And um, you know Roger Corman ones and um, Bela Lugosi. Those ones are really. Mm. I love those ones. Yeah. Now those do, are do, I'm assuming not audio described. It's that are you good with it? Yeah, I'm pretty good with it. And the reason why is they remind me of old time radio shows, like they have the right. sort of the the same sound. That's right, the same music, right? Yeah, that yeah, that's pr- pretty much yeah. Mm. yeah. And, and you know what? They they're mostly in black and white. Those old old movies. Yeah, they too, are. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's nothing quite like the shadow on the wall, though. Somebody needs to tell you there's a shadow on the wall, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're, you know, I, they're, I just, you know, a, a different time, a different era, yeah. and they're, I think they're really good. <clears throat> yeah. So, what do you have for us today, Billy? Segueing into um, the movie side of things, this is the main news media article. It's actually Semaphore News um, makes debut intent on reinventing the news. So we have a from Associated Press a main news, another news outlet that is allegedly launched on Tuesday. It's a website. So basically, what it's aiming to do is to present a non-biased view of base of the news. So. You know that, you know, main news medias, they all have their own political agendas. And this, this, the article is basically saying, we want to take these articles, these issues and break them down. And we're not giving an opinion on, on who's right or who's wrong. Because when it comes to the main news media, they're right and no one else's. So 
it's going to be able to allegedly, if it if it takes off, make break the news down in such a way that a consumer can make a more educated or educated choice that's not based on anything political. And allegedly, that's what it's going to do. Um, the other thing is that it is going to cover articles that the main news media doesn't cover, which is which I kind of like. And it's going to spotlight talent like reporters that are that they think are good um, enough to be recognized. But I think the main thing here is that it is totally unpolitical, unopinionated. So well, I, can I don't understand how that's going to work, Billy, because most of the like the mainstream <laughs> news media say that they're unopinionated and unbiased. And yeah. if you look at so much um, news, particularly from the states, you've got to debunk some of the, the false stuff that's being presented by by politics. So how are they going to, you know, say we present what this side says and what that side says, even though we know that what one of those sides says is a total lie. I don't know how they'll do that. Do you understand how they'll do that? Um, I, I, I just think they're going to be saying they're going to present both sides and then you make the decision. Right. So I think, I think that's the difference is that, you know, it's not one side's right or one side's wrong. It's both sides, and then you make a decision. So you have to decide. But I think because it's unpolitical, it's unopinionated. Mm. And I think that's what the difference is. I think the question is, can it be unopinionated? Yeah, like, I wonder too. Well, like if, yeah. if somebody says, well, there's, you know, there's a group that believes that vaccines will kill you, and there's a group that understands the science and can explain how vaccines work. I don't want them to be given equal weight. Do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and then there's always a, um, how, how do you call it? Like partisan, you know, there's, there's always some level of platforms leaning towards something. And we see it with all kinds of, not just news, but we see it with music platforms, you know, streaming services, um, all kinds of things around now. Um, As long as there is a platform for various things to be placed (laughs) for uh, for us to then go to that platform, uh, there is and isn't, you know, social media is a huge there, there's huge examples of this with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and whether or not they support or not support things just based on who does and doesn't post on there and what posts get removed. Well, I think I it's think, worth taking a look at it. Have you have you taken a look at this semaphore yourself? It just Billy? launched on Tuesday. On Tuesday, yeah. <clears throat> Yesterday, okay. So <clears throat> the interesting thing is if you look at it as one more news outlet, <clears throat> it will never take off, Right. Right. I think you have to you'll have to buy into the idea that it's unopinionated, unpolitical. It might just work, but when you try to reinvent something, it's a new brand, and really, it's they're taking a huge step in doing this, and it'll be interesting to see how it actually if it can even take off. Yeah, well, I think it's worth keeping our eyes on it. Oh, I I definitely do. I think it is. 
Article number two, which is interesting yeah. too, staying staying with platforms. Some embrace TikTok to teach, others warn of decline in student attention spans. Um, I love this uh, this article, and it's basically suggesting that student that teachers are starting to use TikTok as a teaching tool, and it's what what basically what it is is students are going on TikTok and they're 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 presented with the with new with views on certain subjects. And there, and it's it, it, on top of that, you've got music, and so the videos are music dance videos, and on a subject. And the concern that people have is that they're missing the main issue of this. If you're all if all you're doing is concentrating on the on the dancing and the music, then you're not paying attention to what the actual um, video was trying to say, and the other the other side of this is teachers are the reason why they're using it is because students can relate to TikTok, so they're trying to get <clears throat> them more interested in issues. They're trying to spark students' conversations about issues. And let's face it: if if you are if 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 you can relate to TikTok, which most students can. The idea is that it'll get them more interested in issues and things that are going on around the world. Yeah, it's actually a really good idea. I know well, that I there are certain people who are, say, teaching physics using, yeah. um, you know, sites like like TikTok, or they're or they're teaching, you know, various kinds of concepts, legal concepts, and stuff. And if yes. if if there's something that can, you know, attract the attention of younger people, I why not use it if it's there? In fact, get them to make their own TikTok videos that you know to teach these things. I, I think it sounds like a great idea. Well, as yeah, the I mean, article pointed, yeah, go ahead, Billy. As it pointed out, I mean, it's the aim is to spark students talking about issues and talking and you know take talking to their parents and teachers about it. <clears throat> and Pretty of course, much. because it's yeah, because it's on TikTok, you know, hey. It's it's a way to go. Truly, there is a lot of educational content on TikTok. Um, there's people sharing, you know, firsthand experiences and like disability experience and and just all kinds of education out there. And there's something for everybody that way. I think the part that may we may have to be wary of is how short these videos are. These are not yeah, that's even. Right. Two-minute lessons, they're not five-minute lessons, they're not 20-minute lessons. They're definitely not, you know, a series of what you would learn if you were taking physics at school, right? They're snippets. They're little teeny tiny pieces of information, um, sometimes focused on one small concept, one very specific thing. And so what I wonder about is, you know, do you, can you consider yourself a professional if you learned about a subject on TikTok? No, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you, it might make a good introduction. Exactly. Yeah, like what you were saying um, to preview, right, Billy? Yeah. Like to preview, to get you interested, to make you maybe want to learn more about. Um, it's a nice way to kind of interactive learn that way. Yes, it is. 
But then the other um, thing too, just want to kind of bring the sec the, the first article in here. <laughs> there might be contradicting opinions on TikTok and people taking it as information. So that's another point. Yeah, it, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but one so, more article real quick. One more. A Tim Hortons restaurant is installed blue lights in its washroom and it says that it cut crimes rates. Um it or drug drug yeah, crime rates drug rates or whatever you know what a blue light is <clears throat> it's basically a tim hortons has put a, um this blue light which makes it more difficult for people to find veins uh, when they inject themselves so the uh, the whole the, the thinking is that yeah <clears throat> so basically the thinking is if you <clears throat> can take these if you install these lights People are, are not going to be able to inject themselves and that they're going to go somewhere else. And the concern here is that they might hurt themselves if they do it anyway. But the restaurant is saying that it is cut, you know, when when they go in, they don't see people on the floor. Too many times you're going to be seeing people that have passed out on the floor because they've ejected themselves. And the thinking is that if you with these blue lights installed, it'll cut down on the you know the number of overdoses in wa- in the washrooms. Well, then they'll just go next door. I mean, well, I, I know it, it, it may, may may keep people from using injectable drugs in Tim Hortons, but I don't think it's actually going to reduce the crime rate anywhere except in Tim Hortons. Uh, that and. Arguably, they might be safer in Tim Hortons because there's somebody there who can mm. call an ambulance I, rather than, you know, out in the woods or somewhere. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure I like the this problem idea and not that the cause. Much. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Billy. Well, at least we got through all the articles. We'll chat with you tomorrow. Okay, we'll talk tomorrow. Thanks, On Billy. On the buzz with Bill. Bill Shackleton. After the break, we're talking about mental health in the workplace with our friends from Robert Half. We'll be right back on Kelly and Company. Give you guys more of a heads up on the podcasts available through AMI Audio at your leisure, of course, using your favorite podcast platform and some of them available on YouTube as a video podcast. I'm not going to give the whole thing right now, though. Just a heads up that you can listen to Connecting Disability and Kitchen Confession. New episodes have already been released today so check that out and uh, we actually don't have Mary Mammaliti of Kitchen Confession joining us today we have something in place of that however you can check her out on her podcast I'm Ramia Amadan co-hosting with me is Danielle McLaughlin and you're listening to Kelly and Company World Mental Health Day was uh, October the 10th but today we're going to learn about new data regarding mental health in the workplace with Evangeline Berubi Vice President of Strategic Accounts at Robert Half. Hello, Evangeline. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Mental health initiatives have made great strides over the last decade, but uh, is that also true in the workplace? 
Yes, and, and great question. I think the, the pandemic certainly expedited adoption of mental health supports and wellness programs within uh, the, the organization sort of environment um, because, you know, people really started to identify how the pandemic was impacting their employees, um, both personally and professionally. And so they have certainly looked to uh, increase that support. And we're seeing actually 90% of companies have added, have added perks and benefits and, and, a, and a good chunk of that is mental wellness uh, benefits. Okay. That's well, very important. Yeah, it is. And we'd like to know more of these kind of numbers, like the tactile indications that um, employers have started to implement um, mental health perks and, you know, just awareness overall that it is happening. So can you run down some of these numbers that you were able to gather from your most recent survey on mental health in the workplace? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, with that 90% of companies adding more perks and benefits, uh, like I mentioned, mental health resources was, was 39%. We saw flex time at 38%. And while that may not say, may not specifically say mental wellness, but the, that flex time and flexibility within the workforce is also very tied to people's personal and professional um, mental wellness. Uh, mm-hmm. Because people are better able to balance and be productive when they can be productive. Um, so I think seeing that is also another indication of organizations supporting their employees. And then we see 38% providing wellness programs overall. So, um, and, and when we say wellness programs overall, really that that is three different buckets. So you've got your mental wellness, uh, your physical wellness, and then financial wellness. But really, all of those components help you from a mental wellness perspective. Um, so we see a lot of organizations investing in different programs, counseling, and supports in those areas, um, and then promoting good physical wellness with, within their organizations as well. You know, some of them have gyms or they provide rebates on gym memberships, you know, things along those lines. Um, to really support just good living um, and, and good behaviors within their organization just for their, their employees' um, overall health, which is really important. So those are some num- quick numbers to support that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, how can managers help support employees' mental health and workplace well-being? Well, really some of the most effective things that they can do is as I touched on, offering that flexibility. So, yeah. um, and really, really to account for any sort of challenges or changing priorities that may come up um, as, as people kind of navigate their personal and professional lives. We also see, um, after, you know, having leaders within an organization modeling healthy work-life balance. So it's one thing for them to, you know, come to their employees and say, I need you taking time off. That's what's good for you. Um, I want you to, you know, turn your computer off at five o'clock, you know, those sorts of things. But if that's not what they're demonstrating, then people are going to be more inclined to follow their example. So it's really important that leaders lead by example and show uh, more of a healthy workplace balance, offering a lot of regular check-ins 
Um, and certainly this is one of the challenges that has uh, come out of the virtual hybrid world is that sometimes it's harder to check in with people because they're not physically there. Um, right. So you have to be very, very mindful of that. So always incorporating that into your day and into your week as a leader to make sure you are having those personal checkpoints with, with your team and making sure they're okay. And then just really also setting some clear expectations around workload and priorities um, because especially now many of us wear multiple hats <laughs> in an office environment um, because a lot of us are short-staffed and so people get overwhelmed and sometimes they just need help from their leader to better navigate everything that's on their plate and maybe the leaders can take some stuff off their plate and you know kind of move the work around so it's it's a little bit more reasonable for for everyone I really like the idea that um, the managers should be modeling what they mm -hmm. expect to see because so often you'll have, you know, the manager is the first person in in the morning and the last person out and saying, oh, yes, you you know, you make sure you, you leave at five o'clock, but I'm staying here till seven. And then, then people start to feel guilty about uh, what it is they're doing. But if, if they say, no, this is what we do. We finish work at five o'clock. I think that it will be much healthier for everybody, including the manager. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned taking time off again with that modeling. You take time off. We all take time off. It's a healthy uh, work balance, right? Work-life balance and things like that also flex hours. But let's talk specifically about worker burnout. Um, this is a thing and and we know it, even if we haven't experienced it ourselves, uh, we can probably understand what it means and to get to that place of just too much work and not enough um, not work. So can you talk about mm -hmm. what we can do to prevent worker burnout. Absolutely. And I think a big component of that is, again, leaders being very, uh, having those regular check-ins with their teams. So seeing how are they doing. Um, and so watching for the physical signs of it, but also you can, you can generally see it even in people, how they're interacting with their team members, how they may seem less engaged, they're missing deadlines. Um, so instead of um, perhaps getting after those people for missing a deadline, we'll maybe dig in and, and really kind of try to understand why their behavior is changing. And then through that, you know, you can start to see and then help counsel them a little bit on the burnout side of things and then help them out. So walk through with them, what, what do they need? Um, if you have an employee assistance program, you can maybe refer them to that from, uh, from a counseling perspective. You can maybe help them with their workload. Uh, so if they, if they need a little more balance and they need to maybe take some time off, you can certainly suggest that. We've, you know, I've seen organizations literally say to some of their people, you know what, take next week off. Just take it off. We'll pay you. Um, we're not even going to put you on leave, anything like that. You're a valued employee, but you need a break. Um, so take a break. And I don't, you know, and, and, and shut them down. Don't let them <laughs> look at their computers, any of that stuff. 
Um, so it's just a matter of being very mindful of what's going on with your employees and then offering any supports that may seem applicable given that employee situation. Mm-hmm. Which is why you're mentioning all these versions of keeping track regularly rather than getting to that point where you need to say, okay, you know, this has gone way beyond and you are having experiencing burnout. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Why do you think it's so important for employers to offer these kinds of uh, comprehensive mental health perks and benefits. Is it good for the employer? Yes, it's good for the employee and the employer. So from an employee standpoint, it's going to help you in your personal life. It's going to help you be more productive and and just, you know, a better employee. But from the employer's perspective, um, it helps you retain talent in your organization. You'll have a better culture, a more positive productive, engaged workforce, which, which is, you know, very beneficial to any organization, whether you be, you know, for-profit or not-for-profit. Um, and then it also helps you attract people to your organization because if people know that they were, they know that this organization looks after its people, um, that it's supportive and it's a great place to work, it word gets out and, and then it will be a lot easier for you as an organization to hire even better talent or, or some more skilled talent onto your team. Yeah, that's, that's crucial. So it actually is beneficial. You can retain people, you can attract more people or better people. Um, so yeah. it, it, it's not that the employer loses out when this is when mm-hmm. they're doing this. No, absolutely not. It's a great investment. I think, um, you know, you mentioned it before, like people working from home, uh, especially in corporate uh, examples, and not having that face-to-face as much as we used to can pose some challenges, right? Like keeping in touch as a challenge or uh, feeling maybe isolated for some of us as a challenge. And so there are these challenges of navigating the the newer world of work. Um, but do you have anything to keep in mind um, along with those challenges to continue pressing on with these better workplace habits and better modeling from um, our managers and employers uh, to to make people feel like it's safe to practice these new and more healthy ways of working? Yes, no, absolutely. And I, and again, A lot of it comes down to communication, Um, and so having a really strong communication plan as a leader, um, particularly in hybrid environments as well, because you'll have some people in the office, some people not not in the office, so you have to make sure that everyone feels included, so you're always creating an inclusive environment, no matter where they are. So if that means that, you know, you bring everybody into the boardroom and then you have TV where people can then also uh, join remotely, and then you make sure that everyone has has an opportunity to participate in conversations. Um, Again, you're doing, you're, you're being very mindful about also bringing the team together. So if you need to, you know, have team events or you need to have strategy sessions, um, you or team building sessions, 
you deliberately and mindfully, you know, bring people in for that and make sure that, you know, people, everyone's participating, um, creating that collaborative uh, sort of environment, that community environment. Um, so it's just like, it, it's a little bit more complicated, <laughs> but for sure. And it, it, and it really kind of pushes people to be a bit more creative and think outside the box, but it is absolutely possible. Um, for companies can to you kind tell of us where we and, can learn more about this in, in the moment that we have left, Evangeline? Where can we learn more? Where can you learn more? Well, I suggest going to our website, www.roberthalf.com, um, and take a look at uh, some of our papers. Our uh, salary guide goes through and, and speaks a lot to trends and, and provides some guidance as well. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn, and I'm always happy to answer any questions as well. Thank you so much. It's been great speaking with you today. That was Evangeline yes, Berube. Thank you. thank you. VP Strategic Accounts at Robert Half talking to us about new data regarding mental health in the workplace. Stick around. We have bonus Know Your Rights conversations after the break here on Kelly & Company. Always a wonderful conversation getting our friends from Robert Half on the show. Uh, and as I said to you earlier, hoping to have at least once a month where we chat with them and learn about their recent studies and surveys. Uh, and there's just a variety of things that they do research on and then bring that information to us along with some healthy tips and uh, tricks to go along with the information. I'm Ramya Amuddin here with Daniel McLaughlin, who, speaking of which, has generously offered us a bonus Know Your Rights conversation. And this is a bit of a part two on a convo we had last week on Ontario's public health crisis. So let's talk Know Your Rights. Let's examine questions that can't be answered by a simple yes or no. Join me, Danielle McLaughlin, when we talk about how freedoms collide on Know Your Rights. So, Danielle, we talk about Wednesday vibes and how Wednesdays make us feel. And then we throw everybody off by bringing in a little bit of Monday into our Wednesday. Um, but very important discussion here and the the angle of rights as well um, from your knowledge. Well, you know, this is, a, in my opinion, a very important issue. Last week, uh, we heard from nurse Leslie DePoe about how the problems with healthcare in Ontario are so interrelated, um, and one of the big issues is the the lack of nurses uh, available to care for people who are ill, and other people who are also healthcare providers um, and employed by the Ontario Public Health. Uh, one of the big issues is uh, Bill 124. It's a piece of legislation that has capped the wages of nurses and other uh, similar workers in, in healthcare at 1% annually. Now, you may have noticed that the cost of living is going up exponentially. It's really huge. I mean, all you have to do is go to the grocery store for an hour and you'll, you'll discover that something you paid $2 for several months ago is $4 today. Um, 
But this legislation is saying despite the cost of living, nurses cannot expect and, and, and other people in that category cannot expect to receive more than a 1% annual increase despite what they may what they may feel they they need um what are health caregivers saying about this legislation well they're saying a lot actually in fact they're saying so much they're taking it to court because they feel that it is unfair and that it is an unreasonable um limit to several of their constitutional rights one of the rights that we have, uh, according to our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, is the right to association. And um, that doesn't just mean you get to hang out with people who are like you, although it does mean that. It means that you can form associations or, in some cases, unions. And you do this for a purpose. You don't just do it you know, so that you can join the bowling league. You do it so that people can get together and bargain collectively. It's one thing to go to your boss and say, you know, I've been working for you for 20 years and I really think you should be paying me more. It's quite another to say everybody in my category of employment is being treated unfairly and we haven't seen raises that are uh, reasonable for the work we do and the cost of living, that group of people will have a lot more clout because one of the things that we know unions have as a tool is the right to strike. So, you know, if they there's a threat that says, uh, we're going to go out on a strike if you don't um, provide us what, with what we require, there's a great incentive for employers to bargain, to say, okay, well, we, we may not be able to afford to give you everything you want, but maybe we can give you some of what you want. And then that's how collective bargaining takes place. It, it, it's a, you know, the hope is that there will, after the a period of time and, and much discussion, be a consensus where the, the association or the union can then vote and decide whether what they've been offered is a fair offer or, or an unfair offer, and that's very much part of democracy. Um, the Nurses Association has claimed that because of the cap on their salaries, people have been quitting in droves. Nurses ha have been quitting, particularly hospitals. One of the things that nurses have been able to do is um, be hired by uh firms that provide temporary nurses, so uh, agencies, nursing agencies. The nursing agencies can charge the hospitals, and in this case it means the government, quite a lot more than the nurses themselves as individuals or members of the nursing association can do, which the nurses who are still employed uh, as regular nurses in, in a hospital setting are saying, well, you know, how come they can do that and we can't do that? And the answer is, well, we've capped your wages. Um, for some people, this is, uh, in, in the view of some people, this looks like a conflict of interest because the government is the, the body that pays the nurses and also the body that's capping the wages. So it is to the benefit of the government to spend as little money as they possibly can. Who is harmed by this other than the nurses is, of course, the patients. And the patients are saying, well, 
you know, it, it's very nice that you have all this lovely furniture in your hospital and you say you have plenty of beds. The beds aren't the issue. The The issue is people to staff the beds. That that would be, by and large, nurses. So to have the right to collective bargaining is, in fact, protected by law. So, you know, we have had a number of cases um, where uh for example, the RCMP said that they wanted to form a union and uh, policing unions uh, had not previously been been uh, permitted because of also some serious issues about the, you know, the, the um, importance of, the, of their role and that you can't have them strike because if police, police strike, you can see what will happen there. Um, but it went through the courts and they did have the right to form a union. The government in Ontario is saying, well, while we've capped the salaries uh, of people covered by, by Bill 124, they still have the right to collective bargaining. They just can't bargain about their salaries. Now, salaries tend to be the most important thing that people bargain about. They, they, they certainly do bargain for benefits and hours and, you know, other things, other structures uh, of employment. But if you don't have enough money to live on, all of those other things start looking a bit like frills and, you know, you, you may be able to, to bargain on them, but it's not going to really have the same kind of significance that being able to increase your, your wages or, or your rate of pay will have. One of the um, big concerns that many people have mentioned is nursing is a profession that is largely dominated by women. And in the view of some right. people, this bill is specifically discriminatory against women. It's saying, well, you know, we can pay uh, police officers more. They, you know, we, we've, you know, we've, we've carved out a, a way of making sure that even though they're employed by the province, um, that they will get more money. And police officers, as we know, uh, is that's, that's a profession that is largely dominated by men. Not that there aren't women police officers or male nurses, that there are both, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's the, the largest group. So some people are saying, well, this is clearly an act of discrimination. You don't care as much about a, a woman's workplace as you do a men's workplace. And they're also pointing out that when there's a situation where people are leaving the healthcare professions, the people who suffer um, tend to be people who don't have money to be able to hire private duty nurses themselves, and also people who live with disabilities, because many people need um, ongoing nursing care, that nursing um, care in the home, or uh, nurses who provide assistance to people living with disabilities are, you know, this is crucial to being able to live, you know, a, a life that is safe and healthy. So we have a lot of questions about this this particular bill, the big one right now is when it goes to court, will it be considered unconstitutional? And I don't know the answer to this particular question, but Ramya, in your view, do you think that this bill discriminates against women? And that's a really, um, 
you know, fair point to ask that, Danielle. But, you know, it's, I wonder too. Like, I wonder if it's the case to to think of it that way because you said it's a, it's a female and women-dominated um, profession. And also along with all the other caregiving that we know majority of women do, right? Like in the last segment, we talked about work-life balance and all these different things, but um, it, it feels like that's a very uh, limited conversation in terms of the kinds of... Um, uh, professions that women can take part in and if you're a nurse and you know along with the the hours and the kinds of things that n- nurses have to deal with already in the workplace um do we consider you know how much stress they take home and then have to bring home to their personal life uh, yeah. along with everything else so there is just so much and i think there's so many layers talking to Leslie last week um, and and her perspectives and her own opinions as well, um, along with the information that she shared, it, to to wonder, you know, how how stressful people are in this position, um, and how much more stressful things can get. Well, these these are terribly important questions. You know, the kinds of questions that that the court will be likely to look at is, you know, if we say this is discriminatory, is it justifiable? You know, if we say that um, when the government saves money uh, by paying nurses less, is this beneficial to everybody because, it, you know, it, it, it means that none of us is spending as much money because of our taxes. So, you know, will we say that that's a reasonable limit to, um a to an to a a conflict of interest with the with the governments being you know both the giver and the taker so so to speak um you know are they actually bargaining in good faith this is another question that you know we will find if you say well you have the right to form an association nobody's stopping you from say forming a nurses association it's you know it's just that um you get you don't get to do a whole lot of stuff. So, you know, you can form an association to achieve workplace goals like uh, deciding how long you get for lunch or, um, you know, whether you have to wear a certain kind of uniform. Those things you can still you can still deal with that sort of stuff. Um, you know, is 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 the court going to look at that and say, well, so we're not really interfering with the charter right Um we don't know what the court's going to say about this. Uh, it's it's a very difficult situation because these are all very sort of legalistic arguments. Right. And um, what we're really looking at as people who live in the community is the effect. So, exactly. you know, we're saying, wait a minute, I don't care what you call it. I don't care which rights you say you are infringing or you're not infringing. I want to make sure that if I have to go into the ICU, that there are enough ICU trained mm-hmm. nurses to, to help save my life. You know, I want to know that, um, you know, when I'm admitted to hospital, that whatever ward I'm on will have enough nurses to ensure that something terrible doesn't happen to me um, mm-hmm. or somebody Quality I of love. Care. Right. is a big thing that Leslie talked about last week absolutely. and how it's absolutely depleting um, because of this. And it's just, you know, that's scary to think about, especially considering clearly 
more of us are going to the hospital more often. Yeah, well, particularly with the pandemic, of course. Exactly. You know, and 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 it seems very strange that for a period of time, the government found some extra money to give nurses uh, when they deemed that they were working harder. Well, they haven't stopped working harder. No. The pandemic has is with us. If you uh, look at the statistics that the New York Times published today, um, Canada is not doing very well as far as the uh, COVID statistics are are concerned. And because of that, because we know lots of people are going to hospital, um, we need those nurses. You know, if, if you are creating a situation where somebody can, you know, work at Walmart for more money than they can in, in a hospital, um, you know, they're going to take that job at Walmart because they don't have to bring it home at night and they don't have to worry about their own health to the extent that they would uh, working in a hospital, and they don't have to take the kind of flack that uh, many nurses are finding themselves up against with, you know, frustrated and angry patients who have been waiting hours and hours and hours in an emergency, um, mm-hmm. you know. So, and also, you know, are we going to say, well, listen, physicians, firefighters, police officers, they haven't been affected by this. Um, these are largely men. Uh, in those particular uh, situations. So, you know, are we going to say, well, that's okay because, you know, everybody knows women have husbands and who really pay the bills, which is, you know, the sort of 1940s way or 1950s way of of looking at how you pay people. Um, You know, are we going to say, well, you know, so often when we're in a crisis situation, people will have this kind of knee-jerk reflex that says, well, let's go back to the old ways of doing things as if they ever worked, Very as if there true. was anything good about it. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's it, you see it in education all the time where they say, well, you know, the kids are really having difficulty learning. Let's go back to, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic when we know that all the things that have been called frills, in quotes, are the things that actually help them learn and actually increase the amount of learning. And I, I'm just afraid that we're we're looking at a very difficult situation, and um, I think we should keep our eyes on this very closely. Yeah, yeah. When there's a, a limited amount of time and a limited amount of resources, um, we have, as you said, these knee-jerk reactions or um, think you know something's got to get done. So let's just revert back to the old ways. But um, we are in a way better place right now in terms of understanding and acknowledging that those um, old ways just can't work. They don't work. We a lot of us are um, we have stronger voices now. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you, Ramia. That was uh, Know Your Rights with Danielle McLaughlin on a Wednesday. We're going to wrap up the show after the break, find out what's coming up on tomorrow's edition of Now with Dave Brown, and I'll give you a sneak peek of tomorrow's Kelly and Company episode as well. Wrapping up Kelly and Company here on a Wednesday afternoon on AMI-audio. I'm Ramia Umadhan and co-hosting with me today was Danielle McLaughlin. As 
Kelly takes a day off. Now, we uh, had some wonderful conversations here and took down some notes on what to give you for a podcast refresh. So if you're going to go listen to Kelly and Company, the full show podcast, remember that you can uh, check it out in segment form and the full show is available for you as well. Danielle, we'll start with a highlight from you. Well, I really enjoyed uh, speaking with Evangeline Barubi from uh, Robert Half about mental health initiatives in the workplace. I think that, you know, her explanation of why employers doing things to help out their employees and keeping them from uh, burnout help not just the employees, but also the employers themselves. So I think that was a really important thing uh, to hear about and and also kind of helpful. And uh, to learn more about it, we can uh, take a look at their website. And I think that's something that we should all understand that we, you know, we have the right to be treated properly. It's quite important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everyone has a bit of accountability on that, right? The yes. the employers, the people who are directly speaking with us, our managers, our supervisors, and then us um, to also be able to, you know, learn uh, to close our laptops, turn off our computers and, and utilize the supports that are hopefully available to us. So I appreciated that conversation also. And we had a lot of mental health coverage as well as talking a bit of neurodiversity with Ryan Delahanty in the East Coast, PEI, New Brunswick, and um, other places as well, uh, are offering a lot more support and um, involving and inviting the community to take part in these conversations um, when it comes to like ADD Awareness Month and um, ADHD Awareness as well. So there's tons going on in the East Coast. If you want a refresher on that information, please check out the podcast. Uh, Danielle, going to tell everybody what's to come on tomorrow's edition of Now with Dave Brown because there's a lot that they're covering on the show, 9 a.m. Eastern time with your host, Dave Brown, on AMI-tv. So Apple has unveiled a new slate of iPads. Sean Priest is going to walk us through some of the features that you can look forward to, especially when it comes to accessibility. Paralympian Kevin Frost is launching his autobiography, and he's going to tell us about his book, Deaf Blind Champion, on the show. Cryptocurrency. This is has been a rising and falling roller coaster over the last several years, and Don Dickinson is going to um, share an interesting piece on that phenomenon from McLean's Magazine. So all that and more on Now with Dave Brown, starting 9 a.m. Eastern on the Thursday edition with your host, Dave Brown. Danielle, thank you so much, uh, not only for co-hosting with me today midweek, but also sharing some of your own fantastically uh, written descriptions, image descriptions of tattoos (laughs) starting at the beginning of the show and then uh, wrapping up with Know Your Rights and talking um, that. So thank you so much. It's always my pleasure, Ramya. And, uh, you know, uh, there are things that I wouldn't see if it weren't for you. So thank you. And there's things that we don't see, but don't have to because you have you amazing don't, Yeah, you're, you're much better for that, let me tell you. <laughs> right, right. 
All right. Well, that's been a fun time. And we've definitely taken our time scaring Danielle as well. On tomorrow's edition of Kelly and Company, the Thursday afternoon edition, we're talking with Fern Lullum. And she's discussing a major advertising campaign, which is aimed at changing public perceptions of blind and partially sighted individuals. That's going to be an interesting one. I'm looking forward to the details on that and how helpful it actually is. Uh, Plus, we're talking about the Snowmobile Super Show. I hope I said that correctly. And that's going to be a fun conversation. Um, Blair is one of the participants on the show, and he's going to be joining us here to talk about his involvement. Uh, On Curious Minds, Christine Malik is going to go over the James Webb Telescope. Now, this is a really great fun thing to talk about because there's these sonifications making the um, images accessible on the James Webb telescope or at least whatever it picks up. So we've talked about it a few times on the show, lots of different angles, and she's going to bring us more of that on Curious Minds. Plus, if you're thinking of doing a bag upgrade for all your accessories, maybe your laptop, Mike Fair has a review for you of something he picked up recently from the brand Timbuktu. And he's really raving about it. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that as well. All on tomorrow's edition of Kelly and Company with Kelly McDonald, who will be back, and myself, Ramia Amadhan. We'll talk to you at 2 p.m. then. But until that time arrives, have a great Wednesday afternoon.